Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, the man that was the offensive coordinator for the Patriots for their first three Super Bowls, Charlie Weiss. Charlie, thanks so much for taking some time. We really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Anything for the boys up in New England. <laughs> let's see what trouble I can get in here now. <laughs> All right, so let's start with the other night, obviously a tough one for the Patriots against the Bills. And it's been a trend the past couple of weeks. The offense looked good against Minnesota. But other than that, Charlie, it's been some issues this year. What's What, from your observation, has been the biggest issue so far this season for the Patriots offensively? Oh, probably consistency. You know, it you know, it all starts with being able to run the football. And, you know, they got a couple of stud running backs and they haven't been able to on on a regular basis, you know, dominate in a running game. Because let's face it, in this offense, and this is an extension of the original offense, but in this offense, it all starts on the premise that if you can win a line of scrimmage, everything else becomes a lot easier because unlike a lot of offenses that are played outside in, this is an offense that's played inside out. You know, that's why the tight ends and slot receivers always become so prevalent in the passing game because everything starts with being able to control the line of scrimmage and run the football. Yeah, and speaking of that, Charlie, when you look at the running game, I mean, last week, Ramondre Stevenson ran for 54 yards and 45 of them were after contact. So he's getting hit in the backfield a lot. We saw that a couple of weeks ago as well in the Jets game. So is that a personnel issue or is that a scheme issue? Well, I mean, really, when you call a play, let me let me simplify this for you. Every play you call, okay, has a chance to be successful as long as there's not an overload on the defensive part. I mean, if everything is even Steven, it's just your guys against their guys. So you could talk about personnel and you could talk about scheme, but the question is, you know, how many guys they have in the front, how many guys do you have to block them? And whether you're a zone blocking team or a gap blocking team or a scheme blocking team, it all comes down to, do you have enough guys to block who they have? And if you do, where are the breakdowns if it's not working? Yeah, so one of the interesting things, of course, is the change from Josh McDaniels to Matt Patricia. And look, from your experience, you were the offensive coordinator with the Jets before coming to the Patriots. All your Most of your background was offensively, right? Receivers coach, running backs coach, et cetera. When you look at Patricia, he had some experience in terms of the offensive line back years ago, and we know he was the head coach. But well, how much, how much was, is, it goes all the way back to when I was there when he was assistant offensive line coach for a year, you know, that, that'll tell you how, how long ago that was, but okay. Go so ahead. How, Where are we going? 
Oh, so I just want to ask you, so like all that experience that you had on the offensive side of things, how much did that help you when you became the play caller compared to maybe a guy like Patricia, who's more of a defensive background, if you will? Well, you know, when you look at when you look at play calling, let, let me simplify this one, once again, as far as the Josh McDaniels, now Matt Patricia, unless after Josh left, Unless you brought in somebody like Bill O'Brien or me, you know, guys that know the offense as well or at least as well as Josh, it wasn't going to be the same. It just the, it just comes with the territory because even though you tweak things and go in a simplify things and you go in a different direction, it still foundationally starts with the same terminology and everything else. So there was going to be a change no matter what. No, no matter no matter who came in there, unless it was those couple of guys, and I'm sitting in South Florida and Billy O'Brien's in in Tuscaloosa. So <laughs> I mean, so no matter no matter who it was after Josh left, it was going to be different. And was there going to be a drop-off in the whole the whole technical aspects of designing plays and calling plays? Of course there was. I mean, anyone who thought that there wouldn't be a drop-off, I mean, is, is not living in a real world. Okay, so what did they do? They simplified things to a point where everyone was on the same page and then started moving forward. So w- when you when you break it down to that element, okay, where you, you're simplifying things and then everything's moving forward, then it's not too big for anyone who's calling plays. Now you know what? When things are working, no one says anything about the play calling. When <laughs> things aren't working, you know what the hell is wrong with the play calling? Last week, when Max throwing it for almost 400 yards, did anyone complain about any of the passes called last week? No one. No, in the Minnesota game. Yeah, right. no one complained. No, they go against Buffalo and nothing, nothing's working. They don't know what they're doing. You know, so I think it's a no-win situation. When Josh, when Josh left, it was a no-win situation. No matter what way you go, it's a no-win situation. Because unless you bring in those couple of guys that know as much as Josh, there was going to be a drop-off, a natural drop-off. Well, so, Charlie, do you think that if this offseason, because we've heard some rumors about Bill O'Brien that he could be interested in a return to the NFL, do you think if – Bill O'Brien wanted to come back to the NFL, that Bill would consider bringing him back and maybe moving to Patricia to a different role? Or do you think he's going to stick with the Patricia plan going forward? But Bill's mentality normally is to try to promote from within. Mm -hmm. He likes to groom coaches and get them better and get them better and get them better. You know, that that's what he likes to do. I mean, so Bill O'Brien is an extenuating circumstance. He's not like anyone else that's on the street. There's plenty of guys out there that you could go get, but not that have the familiarity. The Patriots organization runs things differently than than most other places. Now, the last I checked, you know, he's done a nice job down there in Tuscaloosa. I'm sure he wants to be a head coach anyway. I'm sure that that's what he'd like to do. But I don't even know if Bill wants to leave college. I don't know if he wants to leave Alabama. So just because – you know, everyone wants to bring his name up in New England. Doesn't mean that the the feeling is mutual. I mean, I know he has a lot of respect for New England. I'm not sec- second that, second guessing that. But you know, everyone wants to just go with the natural. Hey, we're going to have no O'Brien next year anyway, and everything's going to be great. Well, if that works out, fine. If, if that if that's the way it works out. But you know, you have to plan as if it's going to be business as usual. And how do we get better right here, right now? I mean, there's still there's still a lot of the season left. I mean, and the last I checked, looking at these standings and everything, they're not that far from being a playoff team this year. So I think that you know, staying with the Patriot mentality, you're not worrying about Bill O'Brien in the off season. You know, you're worrying, you're tr- trying to figure out how are we going to win the game this week. Yeah, well, you bring up an interesting point, too. I mean, they're 6-6. Six and six. They're still on the hunt right now to try to get into the postseason after making it a year ago with a rookie quarterback. And you look at it, Mac Jones, across the board, the numbers, of course, aren't what they were a season ago. What have you seen from the quarterback this year, Charlie, in year two, compared to a really successful rookie campaign? 
Well, I I really like Jacoby Myers as a receiver, but but realistically, t- tell me who the number one receiver is that 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 you're concerned with every time you go to play against New England. That's probably it, right? I mean, there, there's well, not a lot of guys that, that scare you. Well, the, therein lies the biggest problem. I mean, you could sit there and talk about Mac Jones, and you could talk about Matt Patricia, but at the end of the day, when you watch the good teams play and you see who's out there, you know, even the Jets now, you look at the receivers now, I mean, they have good receivers. They do. You go against Buffalo, they have good receivers. You go against Miami, they have good receivers. And I'm not saying that the receivers from New England aren't any good, but I'm saying I don't think any of those teams are trading their receivers for the Patriot receivers. So you want Mac Jones to get better? Go get him a couple of those guys, you know. Go get you know. Go get the Tyreek Hills to and add him to your roster. And tell me how much better Mac Jones would be. You want you want me to give you the answer to that? You want me to give you the secret? <laughs> He'd be a lot better. Okay. <laughs> well, Charlie, you're speaking my language now because I wanted the Patriots to get on the, on the sweepstakes for AJ Brown. I just feel like that would have been a great guy to go out there and help Mac Jones. So that's going to be number one priority for them this offseason, right? Getting that elite weapon for the quarterback to give him some help. Because this year, like if you're a defensive coordinator, Charlie, on the other side of things, they're kind of easy to game plan for, right? Well, you got to stop the run. You know, that's what you you come in and said. And even though they try to stop the run, you know, they have a couple of men, you know, that are real men carrying that, carrying that football that, you know, you talked about run after contact. I mean, these guys, these are kind of big, physical, bruising backs that you know that are good. You know, but when you when you don't have to have the element of just people going by you on every play. Now I know they got the young guy who who, who looks like just coming onto the scene. That's a returner. Now they go, went ahead and threw a you know an RPO to him the other day for a touchdown. They have a, you know, they have a, they have one guy like that, but most of these other teams have multiple guys, and when you have multiple guys, it really makes the offense. Now the defensive coordinator is going to pick their poison, and then you get a quarterback who's as smart as Mac, who, by the way, is very smart. You get a quarterback as as smart as Mac, and he looks he looks in the secondary and he sees there's two high safeties, and they're running the hell out of the ball. And now he sees this time there's a one high safety, okay, and they're throwing the hell out of the ball. The f- game of football is actually pretty easy when you when you understand it. Just tell me how many safeties there are and where they're aligned, and I'm going to tell you whether you're going to have more success running it or throwing it. Well, and you mentioned that Tyreek Hill. I mean, you look at what that's done for Tua this year. I mean, Tua's been one of the best quarterbacks in the league, and it's not a coincidence that he's got Tyreek Hill now, but I'm interested to get your take on this. If you look at Mac Jones this season, the play action number is way down. It's just about 17% of his dropbacks, which is 32nd out of 38 qualifiers. Last year, that number was at 26.8%, which is 15th. Is that something you think that they could use more this season than they have so far? It still comes down to, you're, you're missing the point on this one, though. It, okay. still come, it still comes down to, they're worrying about the inside part of the di- they're stopping the running game and taking away your inside receivers because unless you have outside threats, the play action becomes less and less prevalent as far as the success rate. Go get me a couple of receivers and then come back and have this conversation with me. <laughs> so if, if Bill asked you, what do you need to do in the offseason? You tell him you got to go get a couple of stud receivers. I'm going to tell Bill nothing. He knows a lot more than I do. <laughs> he always did know more than I do. But, I mean, if you're asking me as a, a guy who roots for the Patriots, okay, who uh, who wants them to win when they play, okay, as an out, as a guy who is an educated fan, which, which is what they call analysts, they're really educated fans, right? You know, they have a little bit more knowledge, okay, than the guy who sits on the couch with a six-pack and a bag of chips. All right, so as an ed- – <laughs> So as an educated fan, if you're asking me what I do, go get me a couple go go get me a couple receivers. Go get me at least one frontline guy because then everyone else becomes goes down a notch. You know, then your number one becomes your number two, your number two becomes your number three. There's a trickle down effect. 
I mean, you know, it's it's kind of funny. I really loved when Philadelphia drafted a receiver from Alabama. He was one of my favorite players. But he came in, he had a pretty decent year. How much better is he now that A.J. Brown is on their team? Yep. He all instantly, they waved a magic wand and he was great. Why? Because now there's not just one guy. Now there's two guys. And two guys is totally different. One's on one side, just like you put you you take those two guys from Miami. I mean, you put you know, put Waddle in one slot and Tyreek in the other slot. Good luck there. Good luck, good luck, because e- either one of them, you could throw the ball three yards and Next thing you know, they're 75 yards downfield banging their head against a goalpost. I mean, so, you know, that that's what any good offense needs. And where you want to be critical of the play calling or you, you, and you have stats to back up play action pass, in reality, it, it comes down to they know what they're doing. Okay, isn't like they don't – they became dumb overnight. Okay, <laughs> okay, but but they're they're missing – Something that the other some those other teams don't have, and that's the front line wide receivers. Yeah, personnel issue. I did want to get your thoughts on so Kendrick Bourne after that game the other night said that they have to scheme it up better on third down. So in terms of how does that register in the locker room, right? Because we're not used to Patriots players saying stuff like that after the game, basically calling out the offensive play calling. Is that something that Bill addresses? Is that something that Patricia addresses? Like how is that handled? Well, I could just let me just say that if I were here, there, okay, okay. First of all, I I don't ever remember anyone ever doing that, and I was there a total of nine years. I had two tours of duty. I never ever, and we had some personalities. Now it wasn't like <laughs> we didn't have any personalities, and we had some guys that were disgruntled and stuff like that, but they didn't air their dirty laundry in the media. Now, I just imagine what I would do before he, you know, if I got my hands on him before the head coach got his hands on him, I'm sure we would have a nice casual discussion (laughs) on on whether his opinion mattered or not. Because the last time I checked, was he in a Pro Bowl last year? No, he wasn't. Oh, no, was he? How about the year before that? Was he in a Pro Bowl that (laughs) year? Okay, is he going to the Hall of Fame? I don't think he's on that trajectory, Charlie. Okay, he's not on that trajectory. So I I probably would remind him of those, a couple of those (laughs) things right there. I mean, now, if you want to tell me somebody who's going to the Hall of Fame, okay, that's earned their cape, that wants to say something outspoken, I think that they would have earned enough respect to be able to say something like that. And, you know, and... Not not be look, frowned upon by doing it, but I th- I really believe in having to earn your keep, and I think it's a little out of place. So, in other words, like Randy Moss or Gronk could get away with something like that, but not Kendrick well, Bourne. I don't know if Randy Moss would even have earned it because he wasn't there long enough to earn it. You know, I think that yeah. it's, it isn't just how good you are; it's you know paying dues into an organization. I think you have to pay dues. You know, and and I think that. You know, Gronk, you know, after he'd been there for a while. Now, think about Gronk, okay? Perfect example. A bit of a, you know, obviously a space cadet. Everyone would agree with that. Okay, <laughs> but but in the building, hardworking and serious. Did you ever hear him any, say anything derogatory? No. So there's a perfect example. You know, despite his, his image, you know, that, you know, you see on the stage dancing with his shirt off. Despite that image, that's not what you had in the building. And you certainly never heard it after a game. You know, so I think that, hey, if Bourne wants to say something, he's entitled to his opinion, but he's also entitled to the repercussions that come by voicing that opinion from my, from my view. All right. Hey, Charlie. So your former quarterback, Tom Brady, Monday night football at the age of like, I don't even know at this point, 60 something years old, another comeback. So do you think that team has a run in it this season? Obviously, they've had some struggles offensively this year. But I mean, the fourth quarter, Tom looked as good as ever last night. Uh, They they don't look that like they have a run in it to me. Mm. You know, I look at that team now. I I feel pretty confident that they'll win the South. And you you never know 
you know, to, you know, when you have Tommy there, you're always got that danger element. But I mean, let me just uh, the next two weeks, they go to San Francisco this week and come home and play Cincinnati next week. How are you feeling about those two matchups? Not great. No, me either. I'm not feeling <laughs> great about it either. So let's say that the, even if even if they lose those two games, let's say they end up winning the division. For a team that goes wins a game, loses a game, wins a game, loses a game, how could you ever be fired up about their chances? You know, now you take another team that goes on a little run at the end. Okay, let's say let's use the Patriots as an example. Let's let's have wishful thinking. Okay, All they're right. six. They're six and six. What if they ran the table right now? Well, that's really going. good about them. Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying they're going to, but what if they did run the table right now? I mean, would you feel good about their chances going into the playoffs? Sure. Yeah, well, I don't see I don't see Tampa watching that game last night. Let's face it, they got the crap kicked out of them on offense for three and a half quarters. Okay, and obviously the, the running back runs out of bound, a yard short of a first down. That ended up catching. One of their most reliable guys uh, – Taysom Hill drops a ball that ends the game on third and 17 on a beautifully thrown ball, okay, by Andy Dalton. Those two things alone. Plus the the, the head coach has him throwing the ball, rather than run the ball using time, 40 more seconds off the clock, the game's off there. Really, New yeah. Orleans should be kicking themselves for having, for having lost that game. But at the end of the day, Tommy throws two touchdowns in the last three minutes, as only Tommy can do. I mean, the storybook <laughs> storybook career. But looking at the team, I just, I just don't, I just don't feel it. Hey, Charlie, I always wanted to ask you this. So, back in two thousand and one, when Drew has the job, kind of coming out of camp. Of course, we all know the history of the Mo Lewis hit. Were you guys close? Like, was that competition between Tom and Drew really close? Like, were there any thoughts of starting Tom to begin that season? No, as a matter of fact, Tommy barely won the number two spot. Oh. Okay. He did not only did not only win the number one spot. Damon and Ewart and him were were like neck and neck for the number two spot. I mean, it was. I mean, that he no, he was not. He was. They neither one of them was even close at the beginning. At, at, in the, you know, at the early in the year. So when did you realize that he was going to be special? I mean, obviously you couldn't predict he was going to win seven Super Bowls and a bunch of MVPs. But when did you know? Like, was there a moment in a game at practice? Was there any? Was there that moment where you felt like, okay, this guy's going to be special? Yeah, there was. I've I've said it several times. We were playing, and I don't remember if it was New Orleans or San Diego. It was one of those two teams, though. We were playing them, and we were we weren't even five hundred at the time. We were under five hundred. We might have been three and five or something like that. It was, you know, in the first half of the first half of the year. And we were playing a game. We were down by 10. And we scored twice in the last couple minutes of the game to send the game into overtime. And they won the toss. And they they won the toss. And they took the ball. And it was back then, you know, first team to score wins. So our defense held them. And we got the ball. We got the ball back. Now, in, on first play of overtime, we line up in a, in a formation that they had an exotic blitz that they used once the entire year before our before our game that we went over look at nothing we have works against this blitz so if they show this blitz this is what it looks like if they show this blitz we're going to we're going to audible which we never audible we check with Mead all the time but audible is when you completely change the play, not when you go from one play to another. I go, if they do this and we see it, we're going to audible, and this is what we're going to do. If you don't see it, just throw the ball away, you know, do, you know, and we'll live to play another down. So we go through 60 minutes of regulation, nothing. Don't see it. We spent all this time coaching up this one <laughs> blitz that we saw one time so it's now our ball. First play overtime, here it comes. I'm standing there and I said, oh, no. Because the, he's a kid. He just started playing. I said, here it comes. He saw the blitz coming. He audibled. 
threw a ball 55 yards down the right sideline to David Patton that they had to tackle him because he tackled him before he caught the ball because it would have been a walk-in touchdown. We get a PI 55 yards down the field. And at that time, we had a we had a halfway decent kicker. We had some guy, his name was Adam Venetieri. <laughs> so we strolled him, we strolled him out there, kicked a field goal, and the good guys win. And that night when I went home, I'm talking to my wife about the game, and I said, We might have our something we might have something special here. That's that incredible. The, so that was the point for me. That that scenario right there. That's incredible. So Charlie, before we let you go, I mean what what was your favorite win when you were with the Patriots? I mean, is it that Super Bowl against St. Louis when John Madden on the broadcast is saying, hey, they should play for overtime. You guys go for it. Of course, set up Vinatieri for that game winner. But is there one that sticks out to you more than the rest? You know, that is my favorite moment. Okay, but actually, my it's my wife's favorite moment as well and my son's favorite moment. Okay, because there are other factors there. Uh, I'll, give you a, I'll give you one tidbit and I'm going to give you a different game. Okay, but one tip because before the game, it was back at the time when we had to go way early because of security reasons. So I'm talking to my wife and son. You know the high walls. There were high walls in that stadium. So I'm talking to them before the game. I'm over there talking to them, and they're next door security guard. I said, "Listen, after when we win, you meet me right here so that you don't have to go down that end, and I'm going to carry you right over the wall onto the field." So the security guard looked at me. And said, when you win, I said, you remember I said that because when I'm sneaking them over the wall, <laughs> you're going to let them go. Game's over. We win. Everyone <laughs> runs Everyone runs on the field. I don't go to the field. I go right back to that wall. And my wife starts to hand my son, who was like three years old at the time, starts to hand him over the wall. Was he three-year-old? No, he wasn't three years old. He had to be older than that. He was older than that by now. But she goes to hand him over the wall, hand him over the wall to me, and the security guard's going, "No, you can't do it." I looked at him and said, "We had a deal," and he he turned his back <laughs> and, and let her hand my son down, and she came down all over the wall. But my favorite game was actually <laughs> Super Bowl Thirty Nine, and I'm going to tell you why, because I had gotten a head job at Notre Dame, so I was both the head coach at Notre Dame and the offensive coordinator at the Pats. And I told Notre Dame when I was interviewing that I would, don't, don't interview me if you want me to leave early because I'm not leaving until their season is over, even if it goes all the way to the week of signing day, which it did. Signing day was that Wednesday. The game was over the Sunday before wow. signing day. You know, so totally screwed up signing day, by the way. But, <laughs> but I felt to the New England organization – and to all the Patriot fans, I owed it to them to finish it out. So by us winning that game, I felt like I had, honor I had honored my obligation to the Patriots, where I could have left early and just gone to take the head job at Notre Dame and not finished it out. But, be but because we played the game and won, I felt that I had honored my obligation. And that actually meant something to me because I think integrity should mean something. Well, on behalf of all Patriots fans, Charlie, I thank you for that because that was obviously a very rewarding Super Bowl to cap off the three, the three and four years, which is this may never be done again. I mean, on, before you guys, who was the last team to do it? The Cowboys, right? And we haven't obviously seen it since. We saw the Patriots win three of five, but it's probably based on the way the NFL works now. It's probably never going to happen again. I mean, at least in my lifetime, I can't see it happening based on I the hope, parody. I hope. I hope not, unless my unless my son is a head football coach in the NFL, then then I'll, then I'll be rude for it to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That is the great Charlie Weiss. Charlie, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. You got it. Tell everyone I said, hey, up there, go Pats. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Charlie Weiss. Really enjoyed talking with him about the Patriots issue. And it does come back to personnel. We've talked about that a lot this year, that this team doesn't have that alpha and the omega in terms of the passing game where you have to fear it. I mean, for all those years, you had to double team Rob Gronkowski. You had to double team Randy Moss. And with this team, who are you really scared of? So he makes a really good point when it comes to the offense. This is something that we've been talking about for a couple of years. You go back to 2019. Tom Brady's final season here. Remember when Rob Gronkowski had retired, Julian Edelman had a good year, but then he was banged up at the end of the season. Tom's numbers went way down. 
And if you look at the teams that were after Tom in free agency, there weren't a lot of them. Remember, the San Francisco 49ers watched all the film on Tom, and they decided that Jimmy Garoppolo was a better option for them at quarterback entering the 2020 season. So that's part of the reason, yeah, we get the age and all that, but if Tom was coming off an MVP caliber 19, he would have had more opportunities to play with different organizations. And because the Patriots' offensive weapons were so bad in 19, it really hurt the market for Tom Brady. So if Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback in the history of the league, needs weapons, what does that mean for Mac Jones? He needs a legitimate, bona fide number one receiver. And right now, unless Tyquan Thornton develops into that guy down the road, they don't have that player. They do not have that player on the roster. So you either have to, this year, go back into the draft, try to get another receiver there, or you have to trade for one. That's the only way they're going to get one of these elite guys, because right now they don't have one whatsoever. And it's been a major issue for this team over the past couple of years. All right. I did want to get into some Celtics because, of course, they beat the Raptors last night. And I heard Bill's podcast about a week and a half ago when he was doing his power rankings of the NBA. And he mentioned the usage of Blake Griffin. This is a genius idea by the Celtics. Now, I'll be the first to admit it. I said it on this podcast. I thought the Blake Griffin signing was going to be of little impact for the Celtics. I didn't think he was going to do anything for this team whatsoever. But they have found this unique way to use Blake where he plays once a week. Essentially, what the Celtics have now done is every time Horford sits out, the past three times Horford has sat out, Blake Griffin starts. So the only times that Blake Griffin is playing is when Al Horford doesn't play. So essentially, they're just saying, hey, Blake, once a week, we need you, man. And Blake has clearly bought into that role. And quite frankly, I don't believe that Blake could play for every night. This is like the perfect way to use Blake. But the thing is, this is so unique. I've never seen this happen in the NBA before where you just have basically a one a week player, but it's working out for the Celtics. You look at Blake last night, 32 minutes. He gives you 13 points. He's five of six from the field, eight rebounds, three offensive, two assists and one steal. He was all over the place, right? Last week against Charlotte in the start, he had 22 minutes, nine points, four rebounds, four or five from the field. So he's giving you really good numbers. And as a starter, 22 and a half minutes, nine points on 71.4% shooting, 4.8 rebounds, 1.0 assists. So he's fresh. And if you look at sort of his per 36 numbers, now I'm not telling you he could actually play that amount of minutes, but he knows he's only playing one game a week. So he can just go balls to the wall. And Blake is playing super hard for this team. He's had 0.5 charges per 36, most on the seas. He's at 5.2 contested three pointers per 36 minutes, best on the seas. He's at 2.5 deflections per 36 minutes, best on the seas. So the reason I point out the per 36 numbers is just to illustrate that when Blake is on the court for this short amount of time, he can just play as hard as anybody out there because he knows he's got a week off in between games. It's really unbelievable. He's all over the place. And remember, Al has already sat out five games, which is great for the Celtics because you don't want him playing back-to-backs. And that was my biggest worry coming into the season, right? hey, can they get Al to the finish line healthy? Because that was a priority for the Celtics. With Rob out, you got to make sure Al is healthy because he was so important to this team making a run to the NBA Finals a year ago. And they found a way to, hey, Cornette's going to play the backup center minutes every single night. And when Al is unavailable because it's a back-to-back, that is going to be the night that Blake starts, his once-a-week start. And Cornette stays in his traditional role as the backup center, which just is working perfectly for the Celtics team. Al Horford is shooting a career high from three-point territory at 46.6%. So I had no expectations for Blake whatsoever. I just thought it was a pointless signing. I thought he was going to ride the bench. But this, I got to admit this, this is a genius move by Brad Stevens. And maybe it's Joe Mazzulla as well. Maybe they discussed how they're going to use Blake. But this has been phenomenal to watch. And it seems like he's just kind of over himself as a player, right? He knows he can't play every night. So he knows when Al doesn't play, that's going to be his night to go. And he just plays really hard. And it does feel like, The guys really like having him around, right? Where Blake Griffin has always been considered a really good teammate. Guys love Blake Griffin. He's a popular individual. So guys remember growing up watching Blake Griffin dunking over a Kia. So they like having the guy around and they've actually found a way to make Blake Griffin incredibly useful for this team. You don't win that game last night against the Raptors if it isn't for Blake Griffin. He was out there for the third quarter when the Celtics won in that huge run. He played seven minutes in that quarter and he was a plus 11. So he was phenomenal in that game. The only thing that I can compare it to, like in recent sports history, would be the St. Louis Cardinals, right? Where Albert Pujols last year played 109 out of 162 games. And 
He had a really good year. OPS was just under 900. He hit 270. It was his best average since 2014, and it was because he played less. That's sort of what the Celtics are doing with Blake Griffin. I just think Brad, he finds a way to make this roster work in so many different ways. You think about Derek White, when they traded for him, quick decision maker, good defender, that works with Tatum and Brown. Brogdon, we've talked about this throughout the season, that weapon off the bench, the guy that can come in there and get to the basket, that's been huge for them. And with Rob out to start the season, you like Cornette as a backup. I didn't know if that was going to work prior to the season. That has worked. He's at least a passable NBA center. And he does more than that. He's been way better than I thought. And the Blake role has been perfect. So you got to give Brad Stevens a ton of credit for that. The other thing I wanted to mention, of course, is that win over the Raptors last night makes me think I'm not as worried about the defense. Like we've talked about the defense, some of the numbers being down. I never panicked with it, but you look at the third quarter, the Raptors had 18 points. They were eight of 22 from the field. That's 36.4%. They had a 78.3 offensive rating, which is just absolutely horrendous. And look, Tatum took over in that quarter as well. 17 points, six of nine, just getting to the basket, physically overwhelming the Raptors, four of four in the restricted area, five rebounds, one block. He was, of course, played the whole quarter plus 17. But the Raptors are an incredibly athletic team, right? They love the long wings. And the Celtics overwhelmed them physically in that quarter. And the reason I say I'm not worried about the defense is partly because, hey, when they needed to turn it on in the third quarter on Monday night, they turned it on. They completely dominated that game. They didn't win that quarter because of their offense. They won that quarter because of the defense, which, of course, was the ethos of the team last year. But I just felt like last night was... A really impressive win because they got a bad whistle. And I'm ordinarily not the type of guy that complains about the officials. But the Raptors took 20 free throws in the first half compared to the Celtics, who took nine. And the Celtics, you could see they were complaining about the calls. And for once, I'm going to say Grant Williams was right. Like, Grant Williams is complaining about calls that should have gone the Celtics' way last night, and they didn't. And Grant's issue was not with, hey, that wasn't a foul on me when he went for the block. It was, hey, you're not calling that over the other end. So without Brogdon, without Al in the lineup, And with you sort of getting screwed by the officiating in the first half, that was very easy to throw in the towel. The Celtics could have thrown in the towel multiple times, second night of a back-to-back. You're already the best team in the Eastern Conference. They didn't, which I think tells you what type of team they are right now. They were incredible in that second half. And so the other thing I looked at in terms of the Celtics and just the defensive numbers, because I want to take a deeper look at this after seeing them turn it on last night. The Celtics on the season, teams are shooting 47.4% from floater range, so in between the mid-range and the restricted area. That's 28th in the NBA. But they're giving up 20.1 attempts there, which is the fourth most in the NBA. So clearly the Celtics want teams to shoot from that in-between area, in-between the mid-range and the floater range. And the reason is they did this last year. The Celtics gave up 18.5 attempts in that area last year, the sixth most in the NBA. Here's the difference. They were at 39.2% in terms of their defense in terms of that area of the court that was the second best in the NBA compared to this year where they're 28th and I don't think it's a personnel thing or I don't think it's because they're not playing hard I just think they've been sort of hit with some bad shooting luck early in the season I expect that to change the same thing could be said about the mid-range teams are shooting 44.6 percent from the mid-range against the Celtics which that's 25th in the NBA and if you look at that number last year 38.9 percent that was the fourth best and again They're giving up 14.9 attempts in the mid-range, most in the NBA. That's where you want teams to be shooting because it's a very inefficient shot. Last year, they gave up the second most mid-range attempts in the NBA as well. So this is sort of the Celtics' defense. This is sort of their plan. And the one thing you look at in terms of their opponent's shot profile, they're giving up 22.9 attempts in the restricted area, the second fewest. So that's really good. And they're only giving up 5.9 corner threes per game, which is the second fewest in the NBA as well. So their shot profile looks good. And look, part of this is once you get Rob back, I mean, teams are more fearful when you have that elite level shot blocker in there. But just in terms of the numbers being not where they were and not even close to where they were a season ago, I'm not really worried for a couple of reasons. The first one is we've seen on multiple occasions when they needed to turn on the defense, like against the Nets, they did. We saw it against the Raptors in that third quarter when they needed to turn on the defense, they did. So that's the first reason and the most important reason. But the second reason is just schematically, they're forcing the right shots. Okay, the other thing I wanted to get into is just the situation now going forward with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, because it was interesting after the game on Sunday night where Malcolm Brogdon said, Jalen Brown is an all-NBA guy. And you start to think about it, it's going to be difficult to make it in terms of the guard line, but he's got a really good chance in terms of at least the third team. But you think about it, Luca, you got Steph Curry, you got Devin Booker, you got John Morant. So it is going to be difficult 
to get on one of those all NBA teams. But the way Jalen's going right now, it looks like he's on that trajectory, if you will. So Chris Forsberg from NBC Sports Boston pointed out if Jalen makes an all NBA team, he can get two hundred and ninety million over five years in terms of the extension. Get about two hundred and fifty million from the Celtics if he doesn't make all NBA, because the Celtics, of course, have the advantage since they can offer the fifth year. So as expensive as that may sound, you're talking about wrapping up Jalen Brown, who's in his prime for 28, 29, 30, 31, 32 year old seasons. So basically, you'd have Jalen Brown for the rest of his prime. And this, from my perspective, is a good thing if he makes the All-NBA team because then you just offer him that contract and all those bad feelings that maybe Jalen had in the past about the Kevin Durant rumors, et cetera, we've heard these rumors with Jalen over the years, then you get to the point where Jalen's over that. And I'm not saying that he holds bad feelings because of it, but I mean, it's got to register with you a little bit. And then it just takes all the drama out of it because Jalen's actually eligible for that contract. And the Celtics ownership group has always said they'll pay for an elite team that can compete for a championship. And based on their actions, like what they did last offseason, their behavior indicates that they will do that. So it just makes it really an easy situation for the Celtics in terms of the personalities. If Jalen qualifies for that contract where you just give it to him, I know it may sound like a lot of money, but you're talking about one of the best duos in the NBA, or I should say you're talking about the best duo in the NBA in Tatum and Brown. And it also really keeps Jason Tatum happy too, right? Because these guys obviously have a really good connection on the court, really like playing with each other. And Tatum has two years left on his contract after this year, then the player option. You lose a guy like Jalen Brown at any point during Tatum's tenure, he's going to be really fucking pissed off about that because you don't want to take away the second best player on the team. And I do feel like Jalen is fine playing second fiddle to Tatum. We've seen that. And Jalen's more of the outspoken guy. He's more of the voice publicly than, say, Jason Tatum. And so I think they kind of really work out perfectly with each other. I mean, we heard Jason Tatum, or I should say we heard Jalen Brown the other day call Jason Tatum the big dog on the team. That's what he said the other night when Jason Tatum didn't play and Jalen Brown just went completely off. But I didn't know if there was another step for Jalen this year. I gave you the numbers last week about how basically he's been the best pull-up two-point shooter in the NBA. But you just look at it, career high in points, 26.7. Career high in field goal percentage, 50.4%. Career high in free throw attempts per game at 5.4. Career high in free throw percentage, 83.2%. 7.1 rebounds per game, also a career high. So he's clearly taken another step forward. And I feel like Brogdon, he made a really good point by saying he's an all-NBA guy so far this year. You look at the numbers, too, between Tatum and Brown. They're up to 57.5 points per game, the combination, and 15.4 rebounds per game. And I made this comparison earlier this season, the LeBron-Wade heat where... We haven't seen a team where they have two dominant athletic wings like this since LeBron and Wade. Well, those two guys back in their first title year, 49.2 points per game compared to 57.5 for the Celtics, 12.7 rebounds per game compared to 15.4 for the Celtics. Now, if you look at those guys, LeBron and Wade, we would all agree that those guys are in their prime and at the end of it, obviously the post prime for Wade because of all the knee issues. But if you look at their four years together, LeBron and Dwayne Wade in Miami, the Heatles, 12.20 net rating. So points per 100 possession, the difference between the offensive rating and the defensive rating when those two guys were on the court together was 12.20. Well, I would say Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are just getting into their primes over the past few years. So if you take last year and this year, the net rating with both Jalen and Jason Tatum on the court is 11.75, okay? So they're really close. And I would expect them to get over that 12.20 that we saw from LeBron and Dwayne Wade over their four years together. So that's the type of duo that you're talking about right now. They are actually comparable by the numbers to what LeBron James and Dwayne Wade were doing. And we could see this Celtics team winning 67. I mean, a possibility of 68 games. I would like to see them sort of jump over the 08 team that won 66. Now, a lot of that's going to depend on, hey, what's the seeding look at the end of the season? Are we resting guys at the end? But man, you get to that 67, 68 win threshold, you're in really unbelievable territory in terms of regular season wins. So I hope they go for it, especially considering these guys are really young. And I do think that they found a really good way for these guys to play together. And like Jalen getting these opportunities when Tatum doesn't play, I think he really soaks that up and says, I mean, last night he's out there saying I'm him when he got an and one. I mean, Jalen doesn't lack confidence whatsoever, but I do like those nights where Jalen for at least for the night gets to be the guy. And 
Joe Mazzulla, to his credit, has done a much better job, at least from my perspective, staggering the Tatum-Brown minutes where they're efficient with both guys when Tatum's off the floor and when Brown's off the floor. So I think that Mazzulla's done a much... Now, part of it is those guys just getting better, but another element to it is, I think, the Brogdon aspect where you can have Tatum off the court and have Brogdon and Brown, or you can have Brown off the court and have Tatum and Brogdon. So I think that element to... The additional playmaker always being out there with these guys is added to it. Now, Tatum doesn't always need it because you can just put shooters around him, like the lineup we see with like Cornets out there with Hauser and with Grant Williams. And you don't really need an additional playmaker when Tatum's out there. But I do feel like they found a really good way to stagger these minutes. All right, a lot more to get into, including the Red Sox finishing second place again to a player. We'll do that next. Welcome back into Off the Pike. We got time to hit a call, so let's do that. 617-396-7172 is the number. Hi, Brian. Jason in Beverly, Mass. Calling about uh, the PDA tweet and a uh, story that just went up on uh, the Globe website about the Red Sox, how they have not yet to make a quote-unquote competitive offer to Xander Bogart. Really, it, it's been obvious since April. They don't want him. For whatever reason, they don't want him. They probably just don't want to pay. The only thing that gave me a little hint of optimism was when the Red Sox management, Sam Kennedy, High and Bloom, BOH, three guys I wouldn't trust to lead a target, were over the top saying how Xander was the number one priority. They said it enough times. I almost started to believe it. Almost. And then this story comes out. And you know why they're doing this? Yes, they're cheap. Yes, they're risk-averse. But these empty-headed dumb fucks think they can let all of our great homegrown players leave, and they'll figure it out, and they'll still win. And you know what's going to happen? They're not going to win. They're going to go back to last place again. Their nested ratings are going to go into the tank again. Nobody's going to talk about this team. One of the reasons why I like this show, Brian, is you actually talk about the Red Sox, probably more than either of the local radio stations. You're not even going to talk about this team anymore. Nobody is. An attendance, I wouldn't be shocked if they go under 2 million fans, which – Five, ten years ago would have been unfathomable. These assholes are murdering this proud franchise. John Henry, Tom Werner, Mike Gordon, those creepy (laughs) weirdos need to get out of our city, get out of our town. The Boston Red Sox are one of the most iconic franchises in all of sports. There has to be some billionaire out there who's a Sox fan or wants to own a prestigious franchise like the Red Sox and actually run it fucking properly. That guy can't come here soon enough. Maybe, you know, they're, they're selling Liverpool to the Saudi Arabians, the Qataris, some, you know, mystery sheiks or whatever. Let them buy the Red Sox. They can't do worse. All right. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, with the Bogarts thing, at least there was some positivity. I'll get into that in greater detail in a second here. At least there was Scott Boris saying the Red Sox are still engaged on the Xander Bogart situation. But It doesn't behoove Scott Boris to say the Red Sox aren't engaged because you want to drive up the price for your client anyway. But that was a positive. And Alex Cora said that he may see him in Arizona next week. Cora is going to go see some Red Sox players and he's hoping to meet up with Bogarts when he's there. So that's a positive thing when it comes to that. Now, in terms of the fans, that's a really good point in terms of the crowd, because I was there at the end of last season for a lot of games in August, in September, and even at the end of July. And I'm telling you, it was an ugly scene at Fenway Park. And you start to think about the game that Alex Cora, and I give Cora a ton of credit for this, this is the right thing to do. He pulled Bogarts off the field in what could have been his final game as a member of the Red Sox organization at Fenway. And the thing that jumped out to me more so than anything else, nobody was there. This is one of the great players of this team over the past 20 years or so, and nobody was there to see Xander Bogarts. So that crowd issue is going to become a problem for Bloom if... He continues to put a bad product on the field, which he did a season ago. My whole thing with Bloom is the Red Sox ownership group just trust him too much. I, I don't believe this is an ownership issue. I believe this is a high and Bloom issue where, and I guess in a sense that kind of comes back to the ownership group. Why is this guy running the organization? That certainly could be part of it. And this is basically for his job. This offseason is for Heim Bloom's job. I don't think we can get a, around that. And speaking of that. Tommy Canley comes out today, this morning, Chris Cotillo, real early. Great scoop by Cotillo that... Hey, the Red Sox, they're pursuing Tommy Canely. They're going to make a real offer for him. And they're one of the teams that's really in on him. Okay. And this is what I said yesterday, or this is what I said Sunday, I should say. Don't keep finishing fucking second with these guys. And this is exactly what happened with the Canely situation. So he gets two years. He gets $11.5 million from the New York Yankees. 
Ken Rosenthal reports Boston's offer was very close but fell short. How many times are we going to hear this throughout the free agency period with this Red Sox group, right? So it's the second time, by the way, they didn't get Canely signed because in 2020, he chose the Dodgers over the Red Sox. So now clearly the Sox were good with the health stuff. So because we all know that they made an offer, as Ken Rosenthal reported, that was close to the Yankees, but not close enough. So the Sox were good with his medicals, if you will, because he came off Tommy John, missed 2020, and then he missed most of 2021, or I should say he missed 2021, and then when he came back last year, he was really good, okay? But minimal sample size last year. But you go back to 19, this is one of the best relievers in the sport pre-Tommy John, 35.5% strikeout rate, 11th of 158 relievers that year. Opponents hit just 130 against his changeup in 19. He had a 49% whiff rate on that pitch, so basically half the time people are swinging at his changeup, they whiff, right? The numbers are good against righties. They're good against lefties. 206 against righties, 229 against lefties. So this is the issue that I have. This would have been a legitimate, bona fide, late-inning arm for this team. This is a reliever you can feel comfortable throwing out there in the eighth and the ninth inning because clearly you can't reference the medical issues because the Red Sox felt fine with the medical issues to offer him the contract, right? And this was this is the biggest thing to me. It wasn't the typical Bloom guy. Matt Strom, that's a bet on stuff. He didn't have a great resume before, but you thought, okay, maybe he can be good when he comes here. Even Triber, that was a bet on stuff. Deekman, that was a bet on stuff where you're saying, hey, he's got he walks the ballpark, as I call him Jake Walkman, but we can get him here, we can get him right because he's got a nasty slider, it's got all this horizontal break. That bet lost. Robles, that was a bet on stuff. It worked when you traded for him. It didn't work last year. Salamore, that was a bet on stuff. It really worked until Salamore was injured in 2021, and then he was never the same pitcher again last season where they ended up DFAing him. So some of these guys worked, to Heimblum's credit, but some of them didn't. But with Canely, this wasn't a bet. As long as you were okay with the medicals, this is an elite reliever when he's healthy. That's why I was so excited about it, because the Sox, for whatever reason, in the Bloom regime, they don't bet on certainty when it comes to the bullpen. Just get a guy that you know has a good resume, a good track record inside him. They never do that with bullpen arms, which is one of the most irritating things to me. I get so sick and tired of the cute shit with them in terms of when it comes to the bullpen guys. Just get known quantities. And look, I like the bet on Rodriguez they made a couple of weeks ago, but that was supposed to come with another guy that was going to be a reliever that you knew you could depend on. Like Rodriguez, that's a very enticing signing, but... I would just like to see somebody that you know is going to be good in the bullpen, that you can guarantee it, right? Like when Whitlock was a reliever, you could guarantee he was going to be a good reliever. Now he's going to be in the rotation this year. So you don't have that element of the bullpen. Now you look at Red Sox relievers last year, 459 ERA. That was 26 in Major League Baseball, okay? So you clearly need to upgrade that. I would have just liked to know, hey, Canely's in the eighth, Canely's in the ninth inning. I feel good about that. But again, the Red Sox miss on him. Since Bloom took over this organization, you thought, okay, you know, one thing Bloom's going to be really good at? Building a bullpen. You know why? Because, hey, that's all they fucking do in Tampa, right? Bullpen, bullpen, bullpen. Talk about bullpen games. They invented the bullpen game. The Red Sox, since Bloom took over, 457 ERA from their relievers, 25th in baseball. 5.7 fan graphs, wins above replacement, 22nd in baseball. 10.4% walk rate, 25th in baseball. 1.42 whip, 27th in baseball. It's been a joke. Bloom for what we heard about him coming from Tampa, you thought that this would have been something he can do. Bloom, there's no evidence so far in his tenure that he can actually build a competent major league bullpen. Even if you go back to the run that they made to the ALCS in 2021, was that more about Bloom or Cora? No, that was about Cora. He's taking guys out of the starting rotation or guys that were starters are pitching out of the bullpen when they're not starting, right? I mean, we heard this whole thing about spikes on. Cora would send the guys and, oh, Nate's coming out of the bullpen in this game, right? That's how the Red Sox got to the ALCS in 2021. I mean, it's not about Bloom building a good bullpen. He still can't build a good bullpen. And this to me is like the biggest difference between Bloom and Dave Dombrowski where Heim loses on his reliever target to the Yankees. He loses on his DH target in Jose Abreu to the Astros. Dave Dombrowski last year got Schwarber, and then this year he got Trey Turner. Dave got JD when he was here. Dave traded for Kimbrell when he was here. Dave traded for Sale when he was here. You knew Dombrowski, if he wanted a player, he'd actually tell you what he was going to do. He'd say, hey, we're trading for a closer and a starter, and they did. They traded for a sale in Kimbrell. He'd actually tell you what they were going to do. Hey, we need to add a second baseman. He would add Kinsler. Like, Dave Dombrowski would legitimately tell you what he was going to do 
and then he'd deliver on the promise. It was actually very nice for us in the media because he knew exactly what he was going to do. But with Haim, it just appears right now, the evidence tells us he doesn't get his guy. And here's my thing. Look at what Dombrowski has already done. You had a team with Harper, Real Amuto, Wheeler, Schwarber, Nola that made it all the way to the World Series. And he said, screw it. I'm getting more guys. He signed Trey Turner to $300 million. said, I need another guy to hit at the top of my lineup, to hit second in my lineup. Behind Kyle Schwarber, they get Trey Turner. When Haim's team was close in 2021, he traded away Renfro for nobody that was going to help the major league team because Jackie Bradley Jr. is not a great player. He can't hit. He's a great outfielder. He cannot hit, though. He let Schwarber walk. Wasn't close to offering Schwarber the money that the Phillies did. His big guy was... Essentially, Trevor Story, who Trevor Story got $141 million, and the reason that that was the contract is because he's coming off injuries, and the team that he wanted to go to, the Rangers, didn't want Trevor Story. So that was almost like, okay, well, he's coming at a discounted price. That's the only reason you signed Trevor Story, but you missed, you let Schwarber go, and you traded away your starting right fielder, who was really good for you, that hit 30 bombs, and you didn't replace him with a major leaguer out there. So that's the frustration. Dave Dombrowski sees, hey, we were really close. Really close. I got to upgrade this team. He gets Trey Turner. With High and Bloom, it's like, ah, yeah, we're not going to pay Schwarber. Yeah, yeah, we don't know about the Renfro guy. Yeah, let's bring in injured Trevor Story. And how did it work out for the Red Sox? Not particularly well in year one. All right, so the other big news, of course, with the Red Sox is Trey Turner, as we mentioned, signs that deal. And if you look at the comparison between him and Bogarts, it's really close. The slash lines are close. Bogarts, 307 average compared to Turner at 298. The OPS 833 for Bogarts, 809 for Trey Turner. The defense actually favors Bogarts. Four defensive runs saved compared to minus one for Turner. Turner's not a great defensive shortstop, but of course he can play multiple positions as he ages. Five outs above average, which is stack cast metric for defense for Bogarts. Zero outs above average for Trey Turner. And look, a lot of people reference Bogarts in terms of He's a lucky hitter because of the expected numbers. But you look at Bogarts, 71 ground ball hits fourth in MLB. Trey Turner's right there, 72 ground ball hits, which is second in Major League Baseball. Now, Trey Turner has him in home runs, 21 to 15. But the thing that I just referenced because of this is they're very similar players in terms of the number. So Correa, without question, is getting more than what Trey Turner got. And he's obviously younger than both these guys entering his 27-year-old season. And what we learned about Correa is he's a businessman. He went to a significantly worse team in Minnesota last year. He got the opt-out so he could hit the market again. He sacrificed being on a team that could win a World Series in Houston, and he went to Minnesota to get paid. And the team just won the World Series without him. So what we know about Correa, he's not scared of playing for a bad team. He'll play for a bad team. He did it last year. Here's what we are wondering about Xander. Minnesota, they're looking for a shortstop if Correa's not back there. Not a great team. Cubs are rebuilding. Do you really want to go to the Cubs in a rebuilding process, if you will? The San Diego situation, of course, they offered Trey Turner more money than the Phillies did. That's another option. I don't know what they do long term in terms of the situation there with Tatis. But Scott Boris did say today that every team that came to Bogarts wanted him to play shortstop. And then there's a possibility of the Cardinals if they get into the mix as it pertains to Bogarts. I mean, that's a place that obviously wants to win. But the rest of those teams in terms of the Minnesota Cubs, they're really not there. So does Xander want to sign over the rest of his career to a team where he can't win like would be the case in Minnesota. And I think that's the bet that the Red Sox are making where they say, hey, they know despite some of their bad offers lowballing him like they did last year, that Bogarts does want to play for a winner. And then they know he loves the market. Remember, he's the guy that went to the Red Sox in 19 and wanted the extension. Now, Boris did say that Bogarts, and I think this is smart by Boris, not that we should question Boris being smart. He gets the most money for all his free agents every year. But Boris said that Bogarts will age well because of his ability to adapt to play second base or third base. So what that tells me is that Bogarts does want a long-term deal. And that's what I think the difference between Correa and Bogarts is. Bogarts just wants to be in a place where he knows he's going to be in a place and he knows he has a chance to win. Correa, to me, seems more like a businessman, almost like Darrell Rivas was in the NFL. Remember, he came to the Patriots as a hired gun for essentially a season. And then he had that huge deal in Tampa before that. And then he went back to the Jets after the Patriots. Correa seems more like that type. Bogarts just seems like to me, he wants to be in a situation where he wants to win. And I just wonder if you don't keep Bogarts and you can't get Correa, what's the identity of this team going forward, right? Kike's playing short or is Trevor Story playing short and Kike's playing second? 
We know that Stories had issues in terms of his elbow, so would you rather have Kike there? And then you have to figure out what's happening with Rafael Devers. You're just sort of patching things together, right? I just feel like they're playing with fire with this whole thing. I just want to know what the plan is for Heinblum and company, because what we've seen so far, they were in on a couple of guys that they didn't land, and Heinblum said they want to add seven to nine players. Well, I would just like you to land some of the guys that you're actually targeting, right? So now Abreu's off the table. No, Canely's off the table. So you know what you need to do? Land Mitch Hanniger. We've heard about Mitch Hanniger. They need a DH. Mitch Hanniger is available. Land Mitch Hanniger. I just, right now, I don't know how anybody can trust Heim Bloom as these meetings get underway. He just finished last, in the division last year. And since he's been here, Mookie was traded away for basically no value. Even if you can't get a deal done with Mookie, you got to get a better return than Alex Verdugo, essentially, and Jeter Downs and Connor Wong. Renfro and Schwarber were here and gone. Like, you like those moves when they made them, but then those guys were gone. So this whole idea that Bloom's been preaching about long-term sustainability, when does it actually start? When does the long-term sustainability start? Because I thought after you made it all the way to the ALCS, two wins away from the World Series, and you had a 2-1 series lead against the Astros, I thought that's when we start with the sustainability thing. You went from being really good two years ago to absolutely sucking last year. So when do we start to get this sustainability? When is that actually going to happen for Heim Bloom and company? That's the most frustrating thing that I've had so far with the Bloom era. Just sign some guys that you know are good. Can you just do that? You don't have to try to outsmart the room with every signing you make. Just sign good players. It's not that complicated. Dave Dabrowski does it everywhere he goes, and he wins World Series. Okay, that's what Heim Bloom needs to do. All right. Oh, man. Needed to get that off my chest. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.